Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia, and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with John Pigeon, ready to unpack a mixed bag of lollies. You're probably wondering what that means. Well, it's pretty much a combination of a bit of Q&A, a bit of tips and tricks, and also our opinions on the property market reform that is being undertaken at the moment. Does that sound like a good enough mix in there, John? I think it does. We're going to go to town, aren't we, on the standards of, uh, of real estate agents and buyers agents around the country. Yes, indeed. So if you want a little bit of everything, this episode is for you. Let's get into it. So John, we constantly have questions for the show that people put in. Now, if this is your first time listening to My Millennial Property and you ever have a question for us, if you're not yet a member, jump into the My Millennial Money Facebook group and uh, click join and we'll accept you. Well, we won't. Someone Someone higher up than us will um, add you into the group, but we do often collate these questions so that we can uh, get back to you with some valuable information. So, John, what's the first cab off the rank for today? Well, Rhea Longley says committing to a large mortgage. Now, this is pertinent to the last two years because of prices increasing all over the country, isn't it? Yes. So, what we consider a large mortgage to be is anyone's guess. It, it depends on our risk profile, doesn't it? And uh, and definitely the cash flow in our life. And and I bring it back to what our highest values are in our life. Like some want to drive expensive cars, some want to go want to go out for dinner a lot, some want to buy lots of shoes, some want to travel a lot, some want to have a great house in a great location. So it comes back to what your values are, I believe, and where you want to apportion your money. I spoke to someone there last week who is um, putting a lot of money towards their kids' education, private school. Mm-hmm. Um, that knowing full well that that come at the expense of uh, maybe some of their lifestyle in, uh, in other areas. So, but they were happy with that because that was a priority for them. So what, what would you say is a large mortgage uh, around the country right now? And, and, and obviously knowing that well over half of the Australia's population is in Melbourne and Sydney. Well, look, I think just basing it off the the medians and how many suburbs have now got a median of a million dollars and, you know, that being really um, not so much entry point for first home buyers because there are options out there that are definitely not at the mill mark. But to get, you know, a decent home for a lot of people, the million dollar mark is where they need to be. So I think when you're thinking about a large mortgage, it's probably in relation to your income, you know, what percentage of your income is going to the mortgage repayments. Um, and as you sort of outlined there, it's it's really personal as to where people put their money, you know, what do they value the most and where do they put that? Uh, for some people who are, you know, maybe a bit younger and not home much, maybe they're working a job that requires them to be 
in an office or at a site or whatever it might be. And home is just basically somewhere to sleep. <laughs> might not be that important to them. Yeah. But, you know, family, kids and somewhere solid and stable, that's a high priority. And so there are people effectively stretching themselves to take on these higher mortgages to secure what they want. And mm. it, some of it is a little bit concerning to a degree when you see people really stretch themselves. It's probably more so around, you know, potential rate rises, which we have discussed previously. Yeah, yeah. So if we took an example, I'm just going to pull a figure that off your million dollars, we make it 20% deposit, we've covered the stamps, we're left with 800K as a mortgage. <laughs> so 800K, we can get loans at, at 2% or 25 or, or thereabouts, but let's call it 3% for round numbers and my maths um, because, <laughs> because, as I said, interest rates may be rising. So 800 at 3% is $24,000 in interest repayments per year, mm-hmm. right? So that's that comes in at, on 100K income, that's 25% of – or give or take, 24% actually – of the total gross income. All yep. Right, so that's um, I think that's okay and that's reasonable. However, what we need to apply that uh, to that is council rates. We need to apply insurance to that. We need to apply the principal amount to that, which yes. might equate to actually double that amount or or uh, quite considerably higher than the twenty four k. So mm. we need to work out what percentage of our income we're comfortable with. And we talk about mortgage stress being over thirty percent, don't we? So yes. if it's over thirty, I'm actually okay with that as long as they are. Yeah. And they're not trying to get a, a pay off a massive car loan. They're not trying to travel three, four, five, six times a year. They're not trying to send kids to private school. They're not trying to go out for dinner four times a week. And all of a sudden, their world's in a spin and, and they're forced to go into consumer debt or, or uh, um, bank up a credit card or, or just not live the lifestyle that they want to live. So it's a really good uh, conversation, isn't it, to, to understand, uh, number one, what does the dollars equate to and are we comfortable with that? But number two, is that figure on a statement each month going to actually freak us out and stop us from sleeping? Yeah. There's also, I think, uh, this sort of mental barrier for some people around being okay with sort of the next level that they're at. So as you're progressing through your professional career, obviously your thresholds increase, not that you're living beyond your means, but because you make more money, things cost more and you're looking to elevate yourself, you actually can get a bit psychologically stuck. And I've seen this happen with clients. I've even had it happen to myself, to be honest with you, as to like what my threshold is for a weekly repayment or a a weekly rent amount. Um, And I think going back to that 30%, that's a good benchmark, definitely. But as you sort of mentioned there, John, do you feel comfortable with that repayment per month? Is that a comfortable thing that doesn't freak you out? And if so, then, you know, off you go. Do what you want. Yeah, and and, and one thing that I actually spoke to someone yesterday about this, um, the fact that, okay, we're going in to buy this property, but the banks will allow us to borrow or lend much more than what we're comfortable with. Um which is quite scary in itself, <laughs> but also understanding where your 
uh, vocations going in the next five years. So this person knew that their income was conservatively going to go up about 50% in the next three to five years, right? And that, that was not a guarantee, but it was pretty much a given in their industry. Yeah. So we don't want them to look back in five years' time on a brand new income that's very different to what it is today and think, oh, actually, I could have bought a different asset, a far superior asset or in a better location or uh, it might have been newly renovated versus detonate sort of house. Mm. So uh, I, I think understanding the next five to 10 years for the individual is is really important as well. And, and knowing that you can sustain that if there's interest rate rises, you can handle that because your income's going up. Yeah. That makes sense. Good one, Ria. All right. The next one's from Alex Whedon Newstead. I think they mean efficiency of rent vesting. Oh, okay. Efficiency of rent vesting. Yeah. Efficiency of rent vesting. That's just a statement to explore. Okay. It's a, it's the second statement today. Yeah. Oh, so okay. there we go. With statement topic. Okay. Love yeah. that. It's uh, it's testing us, isn't it? It is. There's no real direct question. It's just like a statement to then uh, expand on. So. With that, I'll let you commence. Well, I'm going to interpret that as, is rent vesting efficient? Is it an efficient way um, to operate? And I think, look, it needs to make sense to the individual, number one. I actually had a discovery call with a listener, actually, shout out Mark yesterday, and he was debating rent vesting versus owning his first home. And he said, look, to be honest, I want to know I own the property and whilst I know I could maybe spend the same amount of money better in a rent vesting capacity, I just want to own my own home. And if that's the case, that's the case. As long as people are aware of their options, I think that's probably most important. But as for the efficiency of rent vesting, I think it really has a huge importance around having your money work for you, you know, so that the investment that you buy needs to be solid in cash flow as well as growth. It's an investment. And it's a balancing act between the two. Um, but then also in your renting uh, component that you're not overextending yourself for rental repayments each week um, and that it actually does equate to a lifestyle that you want. Because most people, generally speaking, will rent vest because they can't afford to buy in the suburb that they want to live in. That's general rule of thumb what people would nominate. Or they're delaying buying their first home and they don't want to do nothing in the meantime. They don't want to just be renting without anything else going on, whether it be shares or property or whatever they might invest in. So I think it's really important that um, both sides of the equation are working for you. You're not overextending yourself on the investment or the rental um, and that it makes sense. And I think also that it's not too much of a hassle. I feel like for some people, um, investment properties and maybe multiple investment properties end up being a real hassle. And we've spoken about this many times. Do we buy one $800,000 property or two 400K properties? You just got to factor in the potential problems that can arise and the risks that you run in owning an investment property and being a landlord. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's an ever-evolving discussion point because – I don't think there's a one size fits all and it's, it very much depends on the lifestyle of the person, what they actually want. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, finance comes into it, but it may not be the driving factor. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But 
having the lifestyle where they're on a six months or a 12 month lease and they at the end of it they're thinking oh, okay I might move over the other side of town or I might move into state or I might go overseas they they're very nimble in the way that they can live their life and and a lot of people like that flexibility mm. um and maybe living in a, a blue chip suburb without having the really high mortgage or the deposit to be able to get into that area to begin with. So I think that the benefits are, from a lifestyle point of view is that is that you can be fluid in the way you run your life. Um, from a finance point of view, however, in the last few years, you would argue that it's been cheaper to house a mortgage than it has been to rent um, a, a, a property. Mm. And I use the example of... $600 a week in rent, 30 grand a year. What does that get you to rent? Most people in Melbourne and Sydney are probably saying not much at all, maybe a car park or a one-bedroom apartment. Two-bed two apartment in some areas, but yes. You get a two, <laughs> yep. So in other areas, it might get you a, a two- or three-bedroom house. Um, that is equivalent to a, around about a 900K mortgage at 3% interest only. So I pay 30 grand to my landlord or I pay 27 grand to the bank in interest at 3%. Which one do we can we do? Now, if we've got a deposit to buy a million dollar, 1.1 million dollar property, then it makes sense financially that we're better off living in that property and uh, and having an asset there that's arguably in a blue chip location and away we go, we've got a roof over our head. But um Again, that's why finance is only one factor. We then work out, well, lifestyle-wise, what position are we in and when do we want our long-term principal place to live in? Yeah, definitely. I think probably the biggest barrier and maybe the reason people default then to rent vesting is that barrier to entry with the deposit. And so many people, you know, that have been listeners of the show for a long time and are on their property journey of saving would know that the deposit is probably the biggest holdback and there are ways around it. There's, you know, um, different schemes that have been set up and um, things that can assist you to get in sooner, but potentially people may default to rent vesting at a lower price point purely because of the deposit, which is a real shame, to be honest, if you can afford the servicing, that's a bit of a shame that you can't um, buy in. But Mm. That is the reality of our real estate market. It is indeed. All right, well, let's take a break and we're going to come back and talk about consumer affairs and what they're up to. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, so we're back. Emily, you're high enough uh, in the pecking order in this real estate game to be chosen exclusively to be uh, to take part in a, a real estate webinar with Consumer Affairs earlier the week. And I saw an article on that uh, also, I think, over the weekend. So tell us about what's happening. Okay, first and foremost, self-nominated to go to this webinar, which I didn't know what I was getting in, in myself in for. But uh, so effectively, Consumer Affairs have engaged an independent research party to collate information around the property market uh, in Victoria and looking at potential recommendations for reform and changes moving forward, um, particularly uh, looking at the idea of underquoting if it still exists, um, the impact on first home buyers, and if they can be doing anything to make it a, a fair or more fair environment for those who are trying to purchase property. Um, so there are eight key items, I guess, that they're addressing. Some were discussed at length, others were sort of just touched on here and there. But probably the top three that stood out to me was number one, underquoting and how properties are, are valued. Um, number two was real estate agents and buyers' agents' education ongoing, professional development. And number three was around off-the-plan kickback schemes um, or incentives that are not disclosed to buyers. They were the three main ones that were areas of concern for the panel um, and that they asked people on the webinar, such as myself, to give some commentary on what we thought and what we'd recommend to change. Okay, cool. And... Let's start with the buyer's agent piece first. Yep. What, what sort of feedback did you have for them and what did other, I suppose, uh, experts in their field have uh, in that buyer's agent space? Yeah, definitely. So um, probably the biggest thing that was apparent is that there is no licence Australia-wide for a buyer's agent and that, well, particularly in Victoria, the buyer's agents are just completing an, a real estate agent's licence, which is actually all to do with selling. So, there was pretty evident there's a big gap in education around this growing industry that you and I are both yeah. in. That was probably number one. And number two was more regulation around who can give investment advice and what qualifications they may or may not hold in order to do so. Yeah. Okay. And to preframe all of this, property, residential property is not a registered financial product. Mm. So as a result, ASIC are basically leaving it alone, wiping their hands of it at the moment and concentrating on everything that is registered financial products like shares and et cetera, et cetera. So I just know as a buyer's agent, when, when we're looking to continually um, complete our CPD points, right? You go through the list of CPDs uh, and training days that you can take part in and it's absolutely, as you said, heavily weighted towards real estate mm. agents and we're, we're getting CPDs through that are non-relevant to it just, just for the sake of ticking a box, aren't we? Is yours through the Institute, Real Estate Institute of New South Wales? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So one, yeah. The, the problem with that, right, is not everyone 
must be a member of the institute. So if you're not a member of an institute, you actually have no CPD points. Um, and I, I know of plenty of agents, uh, agents and buyers agents who are not members of the institutes because they don't see the value in them. Therefore, they're not completing yeah. any CPD and they just pay their annual registration to keep their license going. Yeah, enough. so that's another, I suppose, bone of contention, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, people can run as a buyer's agent in the industry without doing any ongoing training as such and just pay your money to, to have that registration up and your insurance and then away you go. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just reading a, an extract here. Consumer Affairs Victoria called for submissions to improve the industry in a property market review to evaluate laws relating to consumer protection, estate agent conduct, under quoting and off the plan sales, as you mentioned. Now, legislation requiring all sales prices to be disclosed would lead to more accurate price guides, Ooh. says the REIV president, Adam Docking. So that is a, an extremely important point, isn't it? And I know when we're looking for property in Queensland, um, Queensland are notorious for no advertised sales price mm. or, or no advertised price in which they want to sell it for, no buyer's guide. And you're really going in, especially if you've got no experience in it and it's your first time doing this, uh, you're going in um, blindfolded because you, you, you don't really know what something's worth because they don't have to reveal that, um, which is quite frustrating. It was very frustrating and I still, it baffles me that I, I know real estate state by state, it's governed by the state, it just baffles me there's not national standardised rules mm. that, you know, would allow the consumer buying in any state or territory to experience the same thing and have the expectations of a minimum standard that a price range or a single asking price would be notated Um around that a lot of the feedback uh, particularly there were some first home buyers in the forum which was really interesting to hear from them and they were saying what's most annoying is the quote ranges don't get updated as the market moves so like you appraise a property on the 1st of March it goes live on the 14th of March that's two weeks and then the auction is you know the second week of April call it the 8th of April the market changes in that time and what a lot of first home buyers are frustrated by is that they just keep the statement of information the same and not reflective of recent sales and they think that there should be more regulation around reviewing that on a weekly basis, which I definitely yeah. agree with. Mm. Yeah, and, and you might be sitting here listening saying, well, this is not really interesting for me. Um, I just want to go and buy a house or I just want to uh, <laughs> to um, learn about how the, the skill to do that. Um, and, and that's great. Uh, however, it's really important to understand when you're going to an open home or if you're chatting to a real estate agent, the key questions that you need to ask that at the present time, they don't need to disclose to you. Mm. Um, and, and even things like previous renovations um, like if building and pest inspections haven't been in du- haven't been completed, um, has has there been termites? Has there been um, any any new additions to the property in the last? five, ten years, have those additions been ticked off by council? All those basics. And I I had someone come to me last week that also said, uh, look, I've, I've 
bought a house. It's under, it's cooling off. However, I've just realized that the granny flat's non-compliant, right? Now that wasn't disclosed that the agent didn't say that, um, uh, whether, and of course they don't necessarily need to, but that, that's one example where the legislation or the, the standards need to change. Yeah, definitely. I think there needs to be more information provided for the buyer. There was also a conversation for the panel around building and pest reports and if very divided argument actually, whether the vendor should be responsible for paying for an independent building and pest report and then the buyer can purchase that the on-sell of that report. I personally have no issues with that, um, but there were concerns on the panel around colluding Yes, Colluding, because yeah. uh, the vendor is getting a, a building and pest inspector that they already know yes. and it's uh, Correct. a biased, biased inspection is what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was... Yeah. And, yeah. and generally when you go to auction, Emily, you, you have a building and pest mm. report already done that you can access for a third or an eighth of the price. Definitely, um, yeah. Which is quite handy as a starting point. Uh, would you get an independent one done yourself? Well... Yeah, maybe if you uh, if you want to tick every box. Yeah, for sure, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. So watch this space with a lot of this stuff that goes on. Um, again, ASIC are the governing body. Whilst it is not a registered financial product, not a lot's probably going to be done in that space. So it is up to the individual states with consumer affairs to set some some guidelines and some standards around. But um, hopefully that it continues to gain some momentum to, to ensure that the standards are uh, improved, but not only for the uh, vendor, but the agent, but and the landlord, and also the tenant, but also the purchaser. And a lot of this was focused on the purchaser, wasn't it? Yeah, like making yeah, it fair for the purchaser. Yeah, definitely. They've been the ones that have suffered the most in the market that we've experienced, and so yeah, a lot of the recommendations are focused around leveling the playing field, which is going to take a long time to to level, I think, but certainly at least there's a step in the right direction that it's being addressed. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, very good. Is there anything else we need to chat about today? Um, there has been one question floating around the Facebook page that I think we could just touch on briefly in closing. Yeah. Um, so it's for people who are intending on buying a property and living in it as their primary place of residence and then eventually flipping it to an investment property or maybe you're listening right now and that's actually you this very moment. You already own a home and you want to change it to an investment property. So maybe we could just give some tips on like the process to do that because I did note and you're not supposed to know if you've never done something before but somebody did ask if they should notify the bank to change their loan structure to an investment loan and potentially have a higher higher interest rate. First and foremost, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Probably don't. Yeah, do well, and and what Emily's referring to there is generally speaking, in the last 50-odd years, uh, interest rates for owner-occupier have been at a lower rate than investment lending, um, generally speaking. So you might pay 2% for principal and interest on your owner-oc uh, and it might be 2.5% for investment um, lending. So, yeah, yeah. If, if you convert it to an investment property, all well and good, you move out, you get a tenant in and then you, you business as usual, as long as the banks are getting their, their money each month, that's, uh, that's their main concern. But what are, what are the, some of the high level changes on the day that 
the, the, the owner moves out. Well, probably the biggest thing is if it's been a your primary place of residence, you are not um, subject to pay uh, land tax on that or, you know, it gets a bit complex with the six-year rule and the mix around in, investing and things like that. But um, you don't pay capital gains on the sale of your own property um, so you're basically changing it from that to now being investment. So the number one thing to ascertain would be what is the value of the property at that point in time? Um, and this is a step that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is that in order to avoid paying a gain from the very start of when you purchase the property to when you sell it, you need an, a valuation to take place at the time in which it flips to an investment property. Yes, very good point. Now, is that valuation coming from the bank? Is it coming from a real estate agent? Is it coming from the next door neighbour? Uh, I believe that it needs to be linked to the bank. Definitely a real estate agent's appraisal, the property is probably not going to be strong enough um, because, yeah, I'm fairly certain when I've had people do this in the past, it's been an evaluer um, that is linked to a bank. So there's record of that um, through an independent valuation. Yeah, and for that purpose, do we want the valuation to be high or low? <laughs> so, in in my mind, we want to have it high, don't we? Yeah, totally. So, ideally, if we can get a real estate agent's appraisal, because they love to set it nice and high, so that uh, they think they can sell it for X amount, um, that that would be great. So, just I, I think the key there is to check with your accountant. Yeah. Um, keep them in the loop. Tell them always before the fact, and that that's the one thing with having an accountant. The biggest tip is make sure you tell your accountant before you go and do something. Once you've done it it's in a lot of cases too late, isn't it? So yeah. have, a, have a chat with them. Say, look, we're looking at uh, turning our home that we live in into an investment property. What are the steps we need to undertake? Obviously, one of them is a, is a valuation. Put a line in the sand as a date that you move out. Um, from a more logistics point of view, we are turning it into an investment property. So number one, we need to have uh, landlord's insurance uh, on top of our current building insurance. Uh, we need to make it definitely landlord compliant, don't we? And mm. I, I don't know in your state, Emily, there's, uh, there's been some uh, changes and regulations put in to have minimum standards definitely. for all landlords. Yes. So drastic in some cases that some people are deciding to sell their property instead of re- re-let it out. Um, so right? it really affects a lot of older properties, but yeah, minimum standards, heating and cooling, even the electrical switchboards need to be updated. Yep. So some places require rewiring a whole range of things. So you definitely need to be across what those are and what work you need to do before a tenant actually moves in. Yeah, for sure. Um, And the other one is around money and where you've got all this money that you've got stashed, right? So you, if you've had a principal place of residence, it's likely that you may have some sitting in an offset account. Mm. So, uh, and you may have been paying principal and interest up until that stage. So if you say to the bank, yeah, look, the, obviously the money in the offset account is yours. You can take that and do what you want with it. Um, and you may apply it to your new principal place if that's what you're doing. Yes. But- from a, a cash flow point of view, you might be continuing to pay principal and interest on that property because you don't want to upset the apple cart with 
lending in, in having to pay higher interest rates. So it's really important, again, to chat to your mortgage broker about what your options are, whether it be interest only or P&I for that property that's now become an investment, because a lot of investors choose to pay interest only and then focus on their principal place to, to pay down the principal amount. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then probably appointing a property manager is going to be on the list of things to do as well, one that's appropriate um, and that you're comfortable with and work out exactly what to expect cash flow wise from the property now it actually is an investment what is the rental return and maybe even before you even get to this like I think in the decision making process to flip your property to an investment you would want to have a property manager come and appraise what the rental per week would be to actually make sure it's feasible for you to do so and make sure that you're you know not too far out of pocket if it is a negatively geared um, or not quite getting the yield that you would hope for. Mm, absolutely. And and just on the property management piece, I had a client, shout out to another Emily actually, oh, okay. uh, who uh, had, had a real estate agent, good uh, a property manager appointed and got them down to I think 6.6%, which yep. is quite cheap. Yep. Um, and, and at this stage in talking to her this week, the service is quite cheap as well. So we need to make sure that we're uh, – doing enough due diligence to chat to enough agents and enough property managers, not to just go with the cheapest agent, but to choose someone that we're, we're getting good rapport with, we're getting good customer service, we, that knows what they're talking about because they're, they appraise their rent too high. Yeah. And I think that's what won the business in the end and now they can't get it the rent that that's been appraised at and as a result there's some vacancies in a market where it's point. 5% vacancy rate. So yeah, learning curve to do due diligence with your property manager. And also just make sure they have a good bank of trades and additional people, particularly if, you've, if you're not widely connected in the area that your investment property is in. Mm. I think having someone who's got good trade connections and people who can get handymen quickly who are not going to rip you off and they're just going to do the right thing. Um, the property manager's relationships are an extension of your relationship. So just make sure they're on the ball with who's good and who's not so great. All right. So let's, for those sitting there thinking, well, I'm maybe going to do this in the future. Yes. And it might be three years, four years, five years time that I'm going to flip it and it's going to then become an investment property. What sort of things do we need to take into account in preparation for that? We've, we've covered on things that we will do upon changing that over, but can we get ourselves in a really good position for three, four, five years' time? Yeah, I think probably the biggest thing is buying, like understanding the outcome of the actual purchase when you go to buy the property in the first place. Because, and this is one of my pet peeves of people chasing the first home buyer incentives just to get a property, which is ultimately an investment. I think the the biggest thing you can do to set yourself up is actually understand the rentability of that property from the get-go uh, and any maintenance that would be required over time to do so. And if it is a situation which a lot of people do do where their first home then becomes an investment property and then they upsize, I think is understanding and projecting how long will it take us to save our next deposit and realistically on a conservative growth figure, what equity could we expect in the property that we have just bought um, to then factor in how long your next step may take um, and to have the appropriate you know, structure in place and savings goals and things like that so that you actually are kicking off your, your property goals um, on a timeline. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I think 
I would personally look at, well, if it was going to be happening in three to four years, I would actually start interest only Mm. and just pump the offset account in the meantime with the cash savings that I can then take to go and buy that next property as opposed to relying on a valuation that could go either way in three, four years' time depending on the market volatility. Um, but if it was 10 years down the track, yeah, we can go P&I and, and really get that loan down. Uh, so each individual situation is different but I think that's uh, one thing that you can think of into the future and that's why it's really important to forecast um, five, ten years in in advance as best we can. Indeed. Well, it's been a mixed bag, all right, hasn't it? We've gone from here, there and everywhere. Um, Absolutely. Yes, but we do love a good Q&A and a bit of extras. So thanks for tuning in. If it is your first time listening, hopefully you have found this episode of value and perhaps you might look back through some of our older episodes. It's fairly evergreen content to go have a a look and a listen. Um, But we appreciate your inputs to Q&A sessions and always drop us a note on Facebook. Um, to answer your questions in the next episode we record. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I had the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.